Welcome to Stratfor's Essential Geopolitics Podcast. I'm Fred Burton. I'm speaking with Stratfor's Director of Global Energy and Middle East, Greg Pretty. Greg, how are you? I'm pretty good. How's things in the D.C. area with COVID? Uh, well, still everyone uh, on lockdown here, but uh, at least the weather has improved. Let's talk oil. Why did West Texas Intermediate, the main U.S. crude oil benchmark, go to negative prices Monday afternoon? Well, this is, you know, an absolutely unprecedented thing. It has never once happened before, um, you know, even in, in previous extreme market gyrations. Um, and what happened here is is really kind of an anomaly. You know, you have futures markets are based on monthly contracts with a specific delivery point. And for WTI or West Texas Intermediate, that happens to be Cushing, Oklahoma, which is a storage hub with a lot of tank capacity and all the pipelines, you know, a lot of pipelines kind of join there. Um, so that was chosen as the delivery point for the contract. And it's a physically settled contract, um, which means that you actually have to take delivery. And what happened was that you have, you know, a lot of traders for hedge funds and other financial investors uh, are in this market and are trading, you know, what is referred to as paper barrels, but not actually in a position to easily take delivery of it. They don't have a storage tank like a refinery does. They could, under some circumstances, they would rent storage tanks, but they have to line that up. And what happened on Monday afternoon, the contract was expiring the next day on Tuesday, but a lot of people don't want to be in it the last day it's trading. And the last hour before um, the market closed on, on Monday, you had the terrifying experience of a lot of people thought they had liquidity in the market to be able to sell those barrels and finding that they didn't have any bids. And so there was a panic that ensued because a lot of traders have guidelines that they never want to be in a contract on the last day. And that ensued where people who didn't have storage were just trying to frantically get rid of those contracts, even at a huge loss. That's fascinating. Greg, why didn't the OPEC agreement prevent this? Is there anything more that they can do? What what they've done already is larger than anything previous. Um, you know, OPEC plus, which is the OPEC countries plus Russia, Oman, and uh, several others, you know, had agreed on a production cut of 9.7 million barrels a day, which is more than double anything that they have agreed to do collectively in the past, uh, you know, as OPEC or as OPEC plus. Um, and so that was, you know, that was a big thing. But, you know, it's it's largely irrelevant given the uh, amount of the demand destruction that we're seeing. They tried arguably to get ahead of the situation but it was too little too late. Um, you know, I also think part of the reason that Russia caved in on this wasn't that they were low on money or that it was it was hurting their finances, but simply that there's so little tank storage space available in Europe and so much of their production is hardwired via pipelines into Europe that they decided to make a virtue of necessity. And that's really what we're seeing around the world is, you know, we have something approaching 30 million barrels a day of demand that's come off. Just in just in gasoline alone, in the U.S. alone, that's consumption is down nearly 5 million barrels a day. Wow. Uh, you multiply that out, that's roughly half of U.S. gasoline consumption. So you multiply that out over the world, this is beyond anything that they're going to be able to respond to. And what's playing out here is kind of a tidal wave that is it's filling up the storage tanks, it's backing up the pipelines, 
and it's forcing local prices to come down. You know, we had negative prices in Wyoming as, as early as two weeks ago. So this tsunami of crude is building up and it's just it's forcing the market to shut things in because of a physical lack of storage capacity or takeaway capacity. And the countries that are or the, the producers that are losing on this are not just, you know, they're not necessarily based on production cost, but on geographic advantage or disadvantage. So if you're high cost and geographically disadvantaged, like say Alberta and Canada, that's really bad. But even if you were at a medium production cost and you happen to be in an inland part of the U.S., you can end up very disadvantaged there. But I'm skeptical there's much that can be done about it at this point because OPEC Plus has already kind of done something that was unusually large um, under that amount of pressure. And the other reason is that um, this has almost become a continental story for the U.S. at this point. Because, you know, the transit time to get crude from the Gulf to the U.S. Gulf Coast, uh, Persian Gulf to the U.S. Gulf Coast, is about two months. So anything that they do or don't do production-wise is going to hit the U.S. market after the storage tanks already might be full without that production coming off. That's why everyone has been talking this week about the Saudi crude that's on the water. Um, you know, that they that when they had the price war, they were loading more and discounting it to sell it into the U.S. Um, and so you, you had President Trump mention that uh, at one of his press conferences earlier this week. The problem with that, though, is most of that crude is sold on an FOB origin basis. So most of that crude is now owned by American companies, either refineries that bought it to put in storage, or in some cases, American financials uh, that bought it as speculators to put it into storage somewhere. Um, and so it's very hard to back that out because the bulk of it is already owned by American entity. Greg, with Russia and Saudi Arabia having been forced together again by current circumstances, will that confluence of interest last as the global economy begins to recover? I think it lasts for most of the rest of this year. I mean, if, if this plays out with the beginnings of an economic reopening over the summer, but a relatively weak recovery, which is going to leave demand well, well below it, where it was before, that implies that you're going to need a lot of production to remain shut in, um, not just OPEC plus, but elsewhere. And so, um, you know, if you get above the current operating cost of some of those things, they could come back on. But, uh, you know, as we get into Prices can't stay this low for very long because it causes the shut-ins. And as we begin to drain those inventories and prices get back up in above, I'd say, 40 for Brent, roughly, um, then it starts to become a dilemma because Russia has already been very conservative about government spending. You know, as, as we discussed uh, the last time I was on the podcast, I think Putin has a realistically pessimistic view of the oil market going forward. He doesn't think you can get back to $60, $70 a barrel necessarily and stay there. Um, and so they've already done their austerity. And some of the other producers, particularly Saudi Arabia, have not. Their budget, you know, they're cutting spending, but their budget still balances even after the reductions, probably somewhere in the upper 70s uh, for Brent. And so they have, you know, very different, you know, they can borrow money in the short term, but Russia gets back to a point where they're more comfortable financially at a much lower level than the Saudis. And that, I think, gets them back potentially to where they were before the OPEC plus agreement 
where the Russians, having shut in two and a half million barrels a day of production, if they comply fully with the agreement, are going to want to take back some of that market share um, before uh, you know they, they drain down the storage more aggressively. Um, and, and part of that also goes back to what they saw. The last OPEC plus agreement was kind of the tail end of the flood when you already had prices in the 40s and was designed to jumpstart the market higher by draining the inventory overhang faster. And what they did there was push prices up all the way into the 80s. You got that roller coaster ride and then an avalanche of competing supply, including U.S., that eventually, even without COVID, we were already going to go back down into the low 50s. You know, that's where we were before it was apparent that this was going to be a crisis. Um, And so I think the Russians and Saudis are going to look at that very differently with the Saudis wanting to be a little bit more aggressive on pushing prices higher and the Russians probably wanting to err more on the side of market share. And, you know, we're going to have future OPEC plus meetings. They will, uh, you know, negotiate over that. But the Russians may not want to keep the agreement in place all the way out to 2022, the way that they originally negotiated it. Greg, where do you see this going over the next week or so? I think that the next, well, extend that a little bit. I think the next month or so is going to be very chaotic on the market. And unfortunately for, for U.S. producers, I think pretty grim in terms of layoffs and shut-ins. Um there's not a lot that can be done externally. There is not a lot. Of, there are not a lot of policy options available to the U.S. federal government. Um, there's been talk about various things, um, but in some some of those options would need legislation to be passed. Um, doing a you know the Texas Railroad Commission is still a live option, but they didn't decide on cuts. Uh, you know, even Tuesday, right after prices went negative. And I think this is playing out in a way that is the tidal wave is moving so fast that it's faster than governments can come up with policy options or or pass bills, et cetera. So this is just playing out in a, you know, prices are back up a little bit. um, And and that's largely a result of we now have a new contract. It's not May, it's June for the delivery date. Um, But there's a risk that you could go down to negative prices at the end of June based on storage filling up. And I think there's going to be a a lot of volatility in this, um, but it's going to be very hard for prices to go up much above the teens or low 20s even for Brent um, in the next month or so, because it needs to stay at a level where everybody just has an incentive to turn off the taps. Um, and un- unfortunately, that's that's going to mean a lot of layoffs in the industry in the U.S., uh, and there's probably not a lot that can be done to alleviate that in the short term. Wow. Well, thank you, Greg. Thank you. Greg Pretty is Stratfor's Director, Global Energy and Middle East Policy. Stratfor is a leading voice on the geopolitics of the coronavirus. You can read more about those topics by subscribing to stratfor.com slash podcast author. That's stratfor.com slash podcast author. I'm Fred Burton, and thanks for listening.